We approach you this morning with gratitude that we can know you, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you have brought us near uh, through the sacrificial work of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Lord, as we discuss the truth of Scripture, as we reflect on what we've been learning over the last several weeks, I ask that this time uh, would be a time of uh, deepening our understanding of your word, and I pray that you would um, give us right thoughts of you, that you'd give us an appropriate uh, reverence, an appropriate gratitude, and teach us um, to depend on you more and to glorify you. Lord, we recognize that an aspect of our discipleship growing as followers of Jesus is that we need to learn, we need to be taught, and so we ask that uh, the time we spend <clears throat> discussing your word today, that it would further that goal for your glory and our joy and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as you guys all know, <clears throat> um, in our class on biblical doctrine, we've been pausing at the end of each section to sort of review what we've been teaching, to review what we've covered, uh, but also to give an opportunity for questions and, and, and a little bit of discussion. So we're going to be doing that today. Uh, we just finished covering the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And in that section, there were three lessons. Um, I believe Scott did the first lesson, which was on the person of the Holy Spirit. Carrie taught a lesson on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, especially in the Old Testament. And then Stephen taught a lesson on the ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament and his present-day ministry. So I did not... Um, have the privilege of teaching during this section, but I am going to sort of moderate today. <clears throat> and because Stephen is teaching this morning in our, our youth class, um, it is my task to try to do any cleanup uh, for him and answer any questions related to his section. So be thinking of any questions you may have, maybe questions that came up in your mind during, that, uh, during the last three weeks as we taught through pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And uh, just to sort of prime the pump, I'll ask these guys to give a brief recap uh, sort of remind us what was your basic outline and the emphasis that, that you were uh, focusing on during your teaching. We'll start with you, Scott. Yeah, so I opened up asking the question, is the Holy Spirit indeed a person? And we started with our doctrinal statement, what we believe in, at Redemption Hill, which is that we believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead, co-equal and one with the, the Father and the Son. And... Um, we went through evidences for his personhood from Scripture, um, finding evidence that uh, the Holy Spirit has cognition and uh, intellect, which was very interesting, um, uh, that he has volition and will, that he has emotion and affection, and also that we looked at many passages that showed that there's a relational aspect, a familial aspect, if you will, in many passages where the Holy Spirit is listed on the same level uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, in a familial aspect. Uh, so we, I, I believe, the Scripture answered that question very clearly that He is a, a person. Something else that was uh, very interesting to me personally, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you, um, is the fact that, uh, and Wayne, Wayne Grudem mentioned this, and I mentioned it. Uh, we think of the Holy Spirit maybe sometimes in more of a New Testament context. We don't think of, of him as appearing in the Old Testament. Um, but if the triune God exists now as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he always has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw as we did a, a survey of the Old Testament mentions of the word spirit, or ruach, and a New Testament survey 
of the, the term spirit, which was uh, pneuma, we found that the Holy Spirit was right there in Genesis 1, verse 2, hovering over the waters, co-creator. Co and then in Malachi, the last chapter of the Old Testament, in Matthew, the first book of the, the New Testament, and then again in Revelation. So uh, it was interesting that we saw the Holy Spirit present and active and mentioned throughout Scripture, first book of the Bible, last book of the Bible. And then we ended by looking at some uh, helpful word pictures uh, which to me, I thought, I almost left that out, but it was really interesting to me seeing uh, kind of a, a picture of what the Holy Spirit does and is. For example, the clothing of the Holy Spirit, not only as a protective clothing that God gives us, but as an empowerment. We saw the Holy Spirit mentioned as oil, and uh, the text talked about how the Old Testament priests were anointed with oil. Christ was anointed as the Messiah with oil. We as believers are anointed with the Holy Spirit, uh, which gives us another picture. Once you're anointed, you're also sealed. So the picture of the Holy Spirit as a seal, uh, which is also a guarantee and a pledge that Paul talked about, um, and wind and fire and, and many other word pictures. But I, I, I really enjoyed that as a teacher and a learner myself. So um, the main point, though, in the introductory lesson was that he is indeed a person and I think we'll probably touch on that a little bit more later. Okay, so for, uh, uh, for the lesson that we went through together, we were looking at the, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the, in the Old Testament, um, and then moved on to look at uh, his ministry in the life of Jesus Christ, and then briefly touched on um, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so when we were kind of going through the Old Testament, the, the initial question that we asked was, uh, can we attribute to the Spirit of God that we see in the Old Testament um, the, the person that we understand in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, they are the same um, person of God, God the Spirit, and so we saw how he is at work uh, in the Old Testament at the uh, cosmic level in creation um, and in uh, also being the source of all life, the source of all intellectual, physical, and spiritual life, um, the Holy Spirit is. We saw him at work on the... Um, what we call the kingdom level, the geopolitical level, where he is specifically um, over and over in the Old Testament seen um, working actively for the advancement and the preservation of God's people, the nation of Israel, um, and the faithful remnant. And as well, we see him in the Old Testament um, active at the individual level, the Holy Spirit working in the, the very souls of specific people. Um, and so a foreshadowing, really, in the Old Testament of this indwelling ministry that we know in this New Testament age uh, of the Holy Spirit. So then we went on from there to look at his ministry in the life of Jesus Christ and uh, how we see him anointing Christ for his um, preaching ministry and his um, uh, the, the three years that he spent um, doing signs and wonders and teachings, and we see the Holy Spirit 
um, leading Christ into the wilderness. And um, we see the Holy Spirit as well ministering to him and empowering Christ as he offers himself as a sacrifice for sins. Um, And then at Pentecost is the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise that God was going to uh, remove the stony heart from his people and put a heart of flesh in them and would pour out his spirit on them and fulfill his, uh, his will in them by that indwelling ministry. So um, something new happens at Pentecost that had not happened before, uh, where the spirit comes uh, to God's people in this and takes up residence in them. Um, so that was, that was pretty exciting to look at that, but that was what we looked over. And as I mentioned, uh, Stephen taught the final lesson, but I'm going to try to recap that for him, and I took lots of notes, so I can do that very briefly. Um, but he pointed out, the, uh, in, in terms of the ongoing present ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, that we see this primarily in two realms in terms of our experience, and that is salvation and sanctification, those two large headers. And in terms of salvation, we know that the Holy Spirit is the, uh, the agent of our regeneration. He's the one who makes us alive. We've been brought from death to life. We've been made new. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, Stephen covered for us, in terms of salvation, what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. That this is synonymous with salvation. It happens instantaneously for all who place faith in Christ for salvation. So there's not two categories of Christians. Those who are baptized in the Spirit and those who aren't. Um, All believers who are in Christ are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he did a great job of of explaining that for us and differentiating that from some other experiences we have in terms of the filling of the Holy Spirit and different things like that. Uh, And he mentioned how in terms of our salvation, we are, um, as Scott mentioned this word picture, we are sealed with the Spirit, uh, which is a guarantee of our full glorification, the, the end goal of our salvation. So in terms of salvation, the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that to us. Uh, He's the one who makes us alive, baptizes us, seals us. We are baptized with the Spirit. Um, And then in terms of sanctification, um, believers are indwelt by the Spirit. We are um, temples of the Holy Spirit. He has come to live in us and empowers all believers, um, helping us to battle sin and to bear fruit and to uh, do good works, um, to understand Scripture, to love others, all of those things. Um, An aspect of this indwelling is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And Stephen mentioned, as others have said before, that doesn't mean that we get more of the Holy Spirit. It means he gets more of us. It means that we are increasingly surrendered to and dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so we experience a greater measure and degree of his presence and his power. Not that he shows up in a way he wasn't there before, but that we're experiencing that to a, a greater extent. Um, So that's filling with the Spirit. And then obviously the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, singular, looks like all of these different things. And that's evidence of a Spirit-filled life. And I've talked to people before who might say, oh, that person's really a Spirit-filled person. And what they sometimes mean by that is that this person is very vocal and passionate. Um, But really, when we look at someone and say, that's a Spirit-filled person, It should look like love and joy and peace and patience because you can be the most passionate worshiper and the most outspoken person, bold for the truth. But if you're selfish and unloving and impatient, well, you don't have the Holy, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, You're, in fact, quenching and grieving the Spirit, regardless of how other people might admire your outward displays. So that's really what the the Spirit-filled person bears fruit. 
Um, and then a, a third section that Stephen talked about is service. And he briefly, very, very briefly, gave us an overview of uh, what, what the gifts of the Spirit are. And I imagine some of our discussion may have to do with that this morning. Um, but he showed us a few of those representative lists in the New Testament and talked about some of the gifts that are temporary, that have a specific purpose, some of those miraculous gifts, those sign gifts. And then there are other gifts that we see still at work in the church today. And all of them, the purpose for all of them, is for the edification of the church, the building up of the church. So that's what Stephen covered for us. And, and I would just urge you, if you didn't hear that lesson, um, go back and listen to it. He gave us some razor-sharp excellent analysis of what the scripture teaches. And it was a lot of information, so even if you did listen to it, it was, it was maybe an avalanche of info. Go back, listen to it again. I think that'll be a good resource for us uh, for years to come. He, he gave us a very good presentation on the ongoing present ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that's a bit of a review. Uh, we'd like to give an opportunity for questions. Um, we don't have a microphone out there today, so just yell out your question from your seat. We may repeat it just for anybody who will be watching the recording later. But any questions you guys have in light of um, those three lessons on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we'll open that up now. And if not, I've got a few questions for these guys. Yes, Diane. Excellent question, Diane. So Diane's asking um, if it's appropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit because um, in the Lord's Prayer, as we heard a few weeks ago from Luke, we're instructed, it's modeled by Christ to pray to the Father, and we pray in the name of the Son. So how does prayer work? And I'll, I'll start with you, Scott, ask you for feedback. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, Diane, because I thought the same thing. I mentioned to JD the morning I taught my lesson. If the Holy Spirit really is a person, that means, and in my lesson I taught that he has intellect and cognition. He can understand me when I speak. He is a person. And so therefore, I said to J.D., well, could I pray to the Holy Spirit? Could I say hello? Or, and uh, it really made me think. Uh, so again, like J.D. said, there's, there is instruction in the Bible. And uh, I don't see, at least I don't know of any scriptures that, that instruct us to pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, but I do see Jesus instructing us to pray to the Father. It's the only instruction that I know of. So um, I believe if we're to follow the example of Christ and Scripture that we should pray to the Father. We're not uh, uh, commanded not to. It's not uh, uh, contraindicated to pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm sure that he could understand us. And I also told J.D., this is not instructive, but if you think about the demonic spirits that Jesus spoke to, they also had cognition and uh, uh, intellect, and they, they obeyed what he said. Uh, would not then the Holy Spirit, being a um, uh, triune God, also be able to understand us when we spoke to him? Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, you certainly could, but we're not instructed to. So I don't know if you agree with that or have thought that through as well, but uh, that's the answer that I came to. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I, I agree. The, the primary model seems to be praying to the Father, but because the Holy Spirit is personal... And because he's fully God, he's not like the junior vice president God, like he is fully God. It's not incorrect to pray to the Holy Spirit. It's not incorrect to ask the Holy Spirit to do the things that biblically we know he does, to ask him to help us understand scripture, to illuminate God's word, to ask him to empower us 
for obedience to Christ, to ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of an unbeliever that we're praying for and ask him to convict them of sin and righteousness, to ask the Holy Spirit to shine the spotlight on Christ and magnify Christ. Uh, So it's not incorrect, but it's also not commanded. So I don't think we're doing something wrong if we don't. But I would never correct someone for praying to the Holy Spirit, and I, I do that on occasion. I don't think that Jesus' instructions are intended to be narrow and binding and exclusive. It's, it's an example. Um, so, so I would say it's definitely appropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, Al's got a question or a comment here. How would it be different to pray to Jesus or in the name of Jesus? So different to pray to Jesus versus in the name of Jesus? Um, this is where our Trinitarian theology starts to break our brains a little bit. So we know that Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. So there's distinction between each person of the Godhead. Yet there is a unity um, in the Godhead. There's one God. So when we pray to Christ, we're talking to what Scripture calls our older brother. Talking to uh, someone who calls us his friend. We're talking to our high priest. We're talking to our advocate. And that's appropriate to speak to Christ and address him as Lord. We worship him. We bow the knee to him and recognize him. So we can pray to Christ. um, But as we pray to the Father, I think we recognize the only way we can come to him is because of what Jesus has done, because of the Son's work. So I I think there's a both and. And um, in terms of just our own frame of mind and, and recognizing who we're talking to, I think prayer is one of those areas where we easily become um, uh, Trinitarian heretics, <laughs> just unintentionally. We unintentionally become tritheists, thinking about three gods. We unintentionally um, um, you know, start ignoring the, the three persons aspect of God. So I think God is honored when we come to him as children, with simplicity, talking to our Father. But we come not because of our own worthiness, but because of what Christ has done and because he's holding the curtain open and he's our advocate. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. I don't think that's wrong because you know to, to pray to Christ, trusting that you know that that your prayers are being sanctified, because uh, that's what Jesus does, and we know that He is an advocate for us with the Father, and we even know that Christ prays for us; He is interceding for us. What's encouraging is not just that He cleans up my prayers, but even when I fail to pray or I pray wrongly, that He prays for me in ways I should have. Um, not only that, but we know the Holy Spirit prays for us. So that's such an encouragement because we know that our prayers aren't perfect, but God hears our prayers not because we're perfect, but because he's perfect. Um, and just one other thought. I think that you know, praying to Christ 
um, is, a, is, is a little different than praying to the Father in the sense that Jesus is, though he is God, he's also one of us. He took on human flesh, became a man. So we're speaking to someone who has a foot in our camp, having took on flesh. When we speak to the Father, he is not one of us. He has not taken on flesh. He is not a man. And so having an advocate, and an, an intercessor, an intermediary, a mediator, that becomes necessary in a different way than when we speak to Christ. So good questions regarding prayer. You've got a thought. Yeah, no, I was just going to um, jump in on that. It's interesting when you see um, Jesus teaching some of his final teachings before he went to the cross in the book of John, there is a very clear unity of purpose um, between the Father and the Son in answering prayer. Um, because Jesus says in, in John 14, um, verse 13 and 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter 15, he, he gives um, a parallel commandment, but with the Father in mind, he says, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then these things I command you so that you will love one another. So he, in the same message he's giving to disciples, he's, he encourages both. He says, ask me and I will give it to you. Ask the Father in my name and it will be given you. So the, the teaching is there that the Father and the Son are unified in purpose and that they both answer prayer. That's how I should have answered. That's good. We always want to open the Bible. That's the best way. That's good. Thank you. Other questions? Prayer is a privilege, for sure. Yeah. So the question is kind of wanting to go deeper with the virgin birth in terms of the Spirit's role in the conception of Christ. Is that accurate representation? Well, uh, I don't know if this necessarily answers this is your question. this something you covered, right? Uh, a little birth. bit, a yeah. little bit. Um, so it's interesting to see, um, until I started really digging into the, the Spirit of God um, and His work in the Old Testament, uh, it was easy for me to see the, the Spirit's work at the virgin birth that we read about in the Gospels as this sort of isolated event and this unique um, ministry, as if this is the one and only time that he has done this um, to, to form uh, inside of a woman's womb an infant baby. Um, but as you look throughout the Old Testament over and over again, 
you see these references to the spirit um, is the one who forms uh, the, the human body. The spirit is the one who does that work of knitting us together. Um, and so he's, he's doing a work at the uh, virgin birth that is consistent with his ministry from the very beginning. The only difference is that there is no human father involved and that there is now this um, unity of the nature of God with um, this human body. So, but that was something that I found very interesting uh, was to see how David speaks of the spirit knitting me together in my mother's womb. Mm -hmm. So... It doesn't necessarily answer the question, but it does speak to it's, it's something that he does. And in fact, there is a direct reference. It's a good question, Drew, because if we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, this is Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is concerned in her is from the Holy Spirit. Um, so... Uh, and she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. So definitely the, we have data that the Holy Spirit was directly involved in, in that conception. I like Carrie's point of looking back at the Old Testament. We see other miraculous births um, in Scripture. You think about um, Abraham and Sarah. She was way beyond childbearing years. So there's something miraculous there in that birth. And it was very directly tied to the provision of Messiah and salvation. Um, even if you look at the birth of Samuel, um, his mother was barren, and she prayed, and God answered her prayer. There's something miraculous there, overcoming normal, physical, human limitations. Um, so, like Carrie said, when you get to the New Testament, this is something consistent with his work. Um, this miracle, unlike the other miracles, um, he did it without the use of any male DNA. And the reason that's important is theologically. Uh, we know that um, that Christ Jesus was perfect and he was sinless. And that doesn't only mean that he never screwed up, you know, that he never broke God's law or failed to obey when, when he was, you know, during his, his life here on earth. It also has to do with his very nature. He did not inherit that sinful nature from Adam. And that becomes crucial for our salvation. So one of the things historically that has always come under attack um, from the enemy, trying to undermine the gospel, is sort of a skepticism and a disdain for miracles, and especially the virgin birth. You say, why is that? Well, if you can say that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, that the Holy Spirit was not the agent responsible for his conception, then all of a sudden the very gospel starts to become um, unraveled. So I think if you wanted to study more about the virgin birth and the conception there, I think a fruitful area might be looking into uh, Jesus as the second Adam and looking really at the doctrine of salvation and um, anthropology, which is our next section, actually. Um, and, and there may, may be some more fruitful study there and looking at the connection between Christ's sinlessness, which is directly tied to the virgin birth, um, and his work of salvation as the second Adam who represents us, um, who does not inherit um, that corruption from Adam. Yeah, well, and we know that yeah, he did inherit human nature from his mother, but specifically in Scripture, we know that male headship and, and the federal headship of Adam means that it's Adam's sin that condemns us, even though Eve 
technically sin first. It was Adam's role and responsibility that plunged the human race into sin. So there's a resp- higher responsibility placed upon Adam. Yeah. And so because Christ is, is, does not inherit uh, Adam's sin, because he, he's born because of the conception of the Holy Spirit, it, it allows him to be human, born of a woman, but to not be dependent on and coming from the family tree of, of Adam in the same way that we are. Yes. So it's miraculous. And that's why in Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing the serpent, he talks about his seed and the seed of the woman, because traditionally the seed of the man, we know, comes from the father. But in the the case of the virgin birth, he was talking about the seed of the woman. There was no seed of a father. But going back to your question, Drew, there's also uh, the the involvement of the Holy Spirit. If we go to Luke chapter 1, verse 35... Um, the angel is talking to Mary, and he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we have at least two passages mm-hmm. that show the direct involvement of the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad you asked the question about the conception, because just to clarify, when we talk about the virgin birth, the birth, if you think about it, was no different than any other human birth. That was not the miraculous thing. It was the conception without the seed of a man mm-hmm. that we see in Scripture came directly from the Holy Spirit. So, and that's, that's why a good the question. holy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You had a question? Yes, so the question is, the distinction between what does it mean that Christ is in us, um, that the life, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and this idea of the Holy Spirit living in us, and it's his power that regenerates and fills and empowers us. Um, You guys have any thoughts on that, or do you want me to jump in first? Um, Well, the first thing that comes to mind is you see these different synonymous terms for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and one of them is the Spirit of Christ. Um, so Jesus Christ, one of the um, you know, amazing, humbling aspects that we don't always feel the full force of in the incarnation is that he took on a corporeal body. Um, so Jesus, after his ascension, um, is at the right hand of the Father, and so his ministry to us, which is a very real direct ministry from him, is until he comes back by the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, so there, there is this sense in which he is with us. He will not leave us or forsake us. And he is with us by the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ. And so that's where this... Um, unity within the Trinity Mm -hmm. 
becomes very important. It's, it's easy for us to sort of divorce our affection for the Son from the affection we ought to feel towards the Spirit when they are the same God. Um, so I think that, you know, this, this Trinitarian doctrine as it applies to the ministry of the Holy Spirit reinforces that Jesus' ministry in me today is by this third person of the Godhead. Um, so he is, he is with me in the sense that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, one and the same are with me. Yes, Matthew 28. You guys know the Great Commission text. Um, and Jesus ends it with, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the question is, how can he say that if he's going away? It's like Carrie said, it's through, fulfills that promise by means of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So these, those aren't ideas that are in tension or conflict. They're in harmony. It's one and the same. Um, Christ in his physical nature can't dwell with us, in us. Like Carrie said, he's ascended. Um, but by his spirit, he is with us. Craig. So the question is, why was the Holy Spirit physically represented at the baptism of Christ? Why is that so important? Because he has this behind-the-scenes ministry. He's always shining the light on Christ and away from himself. Um, <clears throat> I do think there might be one, <clears throat> at least one other time where we see the Spirit uh, represented in a visible sense. I think the, the tongues, the flames of fire at Pentecost could be, could be another case. But yeah, the most... Um, probably the most significant, and the one we think of most, it would be at Christ's baptism. Any thoughts you guys have on, on why the, the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit at that moment, where you have the Father speaking from heaven, the Son coming up out of the water, and the Spirit descending like a dove, you have this unique event. So at, at that event, the anointing of Jesus Christ, where the Spirit is, is visibly represented, um, the other person who is there, who is a part of this narrative, is John the Baptist. And later on in the book of Matthew, he reveals that in a, um, uh, a revelation from God that he had received, he had been told, you will see the Spirit descend on the Messiah, on the Christ, uh, in the form of a dove. And so where it says, and he saw the Spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. Um, it's speaking of John the Baptist. He sees this confirmation from God, this um, validation of, of the person of Jesus, so that John would continue to affirm he is the Messiah, he is the Lamb of God. Um, so I think that that was a huge part of the reason we see this visual, visible representation. I don't know necessarily that any of the other spectators are, we're told, saw this happen. Um, but 
John the Baptist saw the Spirit descend on Christ as a dove. Jesus saw the Spirit descend on him as a dove, and it was for the, um, the, the keeping of that promise to John and validation of Jesus as the Messiah. So Matthew 3, um, verse 16, it tells us that he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then Carrie's mentioning John chapter 1 um, in verse 30 uh, through 33, 34, where John says that he saw this just like God told him he would. So those are the two passages Carrie's referencing. It's a good answer. I think the other aspect of that is um, not only for confirmation in that moment, but you have a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy um, that God says he would place his spirit upon his servant. And so there's a connection to what's going on in the Old Testament with a promise of pouring out his spirit on this Messiah to empower him to bring about salvation uh, for God's people. So, Diane. Yes, yes, so Diane's question is um, the idea of imputation, that at salvation, our sin is transferred to Christ at the cross, and his righteousness is transferred to us. And then when it talks about Christ living in us, that it's perhaps referring to that righteousness of Christ. Um, I think that's probably part of what's going on in view, but I think also the Spirit is a big part of that. And again, how is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings that about. So I think those two things work in harmony. So and I would add also, Diane, referring back to what Carrie mentioned, um, as we went through all the depictions of the Holy Spirit as uh, a unique entity or the Spirit of God, we also listed, and I won't mention all the references, but uh, the Spirit in us is the Spirit of Christ. Um, we saw the Spirit of the Lord, the Lord referring to Christ, uh, the, the Lord who is the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of His Son. So uh, the Holy Spirit in us is referred to numerous times as Jesus Christ's Spirit in us. So both and, and the, again, it's a triune notion, right? So uh, we can't really parse them out as separate. Kimberly. So the question is about Old Testament believers, their experience in terms of the Holy Spirit, because the promise of the new covenant, yes, so the promise of the new covenant seems to indicate there's something more coming that they didn't have. So what's the difference there? You studied some of the Old Testament stuff. Any, any thoughts on that? 
just kind and of Stephen and I talked back about, and see so if, uh, Stephen and I talked about this at length before before his his lesson and after his lesson some. Um, and I think we need to say that in terms of regeneration, Old Testament believers were saved just like us through faith in Christ. They look forward to the cross. We look back at the cross, but it's still faith. And you mentioned that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in terms of regeneration, being made alive, that is a work of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The difference is the ongoing result, <clears throat> the result of that for us, we have, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't say that it's a difference in regeneration, because being made alive is a work of the Spirit, Old and New Testament. But Old Testament believers were not baptized in the Spirit the way we are. So they did not have this ongoing, indwelling power the same way that, that we do. Um, so yes, there is a distinction there in terms of obedience. And it's interesting, David prays um, in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. We don't ever have to pray that. It's just different for us. We know that while we can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, we cannot lose the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed, we've been baptized, he dwells within us. And that is different than the Old Testament believers. Um, so what I think we often see in the Old Testament believers with their struggles is this is what it looks like when you don't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It shows us, here's what it looks like when you rely on yourself. We can fail just like they did when we don't take advantage of this blessing, this opportunity we have to experience the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, which for them was intermittent and for us is a permanent condition. So... Mm-hmm. And um, I will re-listen to you and teach you, but that has been something that Christian life I have not completely understood because as an early Christian, um, I was charismatic Christian, and that was for 15 years, but for the past 25 years, then reformed uh, beliefs, but Yes. So we've only got about two minutes left. I'll try to be very brief with this. And um, if some of you guys have more questions about this, um, this is something that uh, has been covered. Um, uh, Stephen talked about it just a little bit, but we gave a full sermon-length treatment to this topic. If you go back on our website, there's a, a sermon series on doctrine where we taught through our statement of faith. And we have a statement on, we have a whole sermon on the gifts of the Spirit and explaining why it is that we believe that some of these gifts, like tongues and healing um, and um, the kind of prophecy that tells the future, um, some of those things, why we believe that those were unique for the first century and not something, the word I like to use is not something that's normative today, not something we should be expecting and not something that we need even and Stephen sort of just affirmed that and explained it very briefly. In terms of why, there's a couple reasons. Um, number one, we don't have apostles today. And it seems that many of those gifts were very closely linked with the apostles and their close companions and the unique ministry that they were doing. So we know that the church is built on the, on, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ being the cornerstone. So the foundation was being laid by the apostles. Their miracles, their teaching, their unique work, those apostles was authenticated and proven, and, and, and God used them in a unique way. 
The church is not being built the same way today because we have that initial investment, that work that was done by the apostles. We have their writings, um, and their writings have been proven throughout time, and it was affirmed on the spot by their demonstration of power in some of those gifts. There's also an aspect of fulfillment. Um, This has to do with Pentecost and tongues and things like that. The Old Testament said that when God started doing this new thing, this new covenant, this new work that was coming, it would be marked by um, speaking in tongues, these various languages. And so when you see um, uh, the church being born at Pentecost, and you see the gospel overflowing the boundaries of Israel and Jerusalem and going into Judea and Samaria and and the ends of the earth, Um, All of these people were gathered to Jerusalem at Pentecost, and part of what was going on with with preaching the gospel in these various languages was affirming that what God said was going to start in the Old Testament is starting now. So we don't need to signal anymore that the new covenant has come. That's already been signaled, and it's already overflowed the banks, and we're now running with the gospel, and there's churches around the world today. Not that we're not planting churches and evangelizing, but... No longer does specifically the nation Israel, the Jews, need to be convinced. Remember, the the early church was Jewish. The first church was at Jerusalem. There's 3,000 people getting saved in a day, and they're all Jewish. They needed to know that this isn't some cult breaking them away from the true worship of Yahweh. This is the fulfillment of what Yahweh said would happen, and that they're in line with all of the Old Testament by following this Jesus as Messiah. So there's something of, of convincing the Jews um, and signaling that something new is happening that was going on with tongues. So, so there's, there's the apostolic nature of those gifts. There's um, the affirmation and authentication that this is truly the continuation of everything that God has been saying would happen. Um, and then part of it is just that we don't see the same gifts happening today in the same way. When people talk about prophecy and tongues and healing today and try to say, yes, we see this going on, um, very rarely does it look like what it looked like in the New Testament. So we do believe that the Holy Spirit is active today. We believe in miracles. We believe in healing. Um, but we believe that God does that as an answer to prayer directly. He doesn't necessarily give those gifts to us to exercise. So I like to differentiate between things that God is doing just by his providential hand at work in terms of healing people or doing things like that, answering prayer, things that are miraculous. We all have those stories and we know about them. I think there's a difference between that and someone who has been gifted with power through the Holy Spirit to do those things um, for a specific purpose. And Stephen even mentioned as the, as the New Testament unfolds, you start seeing these gifts taper off. And you have Paul telling Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach instead of just, why don't you get healed? <laughs> you know, so we even see a difference happening. And the only two books that mention tongues are Acts, where you have Pentecost happening and this really unique movement of the gospel, and then 1 Corinthians, where they were getting it all wrong. Um, and 1 Corinthians was written very early. It was Paul's first letter. It was very, written very early in the history of the church. So as the history of the church moves on and as scripture unfolds, we see those things tapering off. So there's more to that. We don't have time. But those are some of the reasons why we believe that God is not giving those. And if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you see that the Spirit gives these gifts um, sovereignly as he deems fit. So we're not in a position to tell him that he needs to give those gifts today. If he decides that we need it, then he'll do it. But as we look at church history and the reason for these gifts, it doesn't seem that the Holy Spirit is giving them. And rather than blame the church for unbelief, we should simply recognize the the providential plan of God in building his church because the gifts are for building the church, and he's doing that. So 
Yeah, that's a brief answer. Again, if you go on the website, you can look up that sermon where we talk about these things more in length. So we've gone a little bit over time. We'll see you guys back here in 12 minutes. Um, If you've got kids in Sunday school, go grab them. We look forward to worship with you very shortly.